This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Cult of the Irrelevant, The Waning Influence of Social Science on National Security. The author is Michael Desch, and the publisher is Princeton University Press. I have the real uh, pleasure to have Michael on the phone today. Mike, how are you doing? Good, good. Glad to be with you. Yeah, such a pleasure um, to uh, read this interesting book about the um, uh, some of the disciplinary uh, things that have gone on in, in political science and, and security studies and what have you. Before we get to the book, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm the uh, Packy J.D. Professor of International Affairs in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and I'm also the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. And NDISC is a research body that aims to be a bridge ac- across the gap between the ivory tower and the policy world. So in a way, the book is a uh, result of uh, my reflections over the past 30 years uh, of trying to be both a uh, credible social scientist, but also one whose work speaks to a broader audience and hopefully contributes, if even only in some small way, to uh, addressing uh, important problems society faces. Yeah, not not unlike the the motivation of this podcast, which is to kind of get the word out. Uh, Your book uh, is, is about a lot of things. One of the things it's about is this dichotomy between rigor and relevance. Uh, these terms mean different things at different points in the book. They they come up and and sort of defined and redefined based on the the point in history we are. But in general terms, what do you mean by each? What is rigor and what is relevance? Well, rigor refers to the effort to be as precise uh, about the sort of causal inferences that you make as you possibly can be. Um, And that involves attention to research design, but also uh, the use of uh, particular uh, methodologies. And we'll come back to the methodology piece because that's, uh, as you know, Heath, a big part of my story. Relevance, on the other hand, I define uh, simply as trying to uh, uh, insert the findings of one's research into the policy debate. And I use as sort of a shorthand measure for that willingness to make policy uh, recommendations. And uh, so those are my definitions, uh, maybe not uh, 
uncontroversial. You know, people might have other definitions, but like definitions in general, uh, they are what they are. And as long as you use them consistently, the gustibus non est disputandum, as they say. Right. No. And, and I think that, you know, as, and, and these things change as we move over the 20th century, which is much of the focus of the book. Your book is also focused on national security and, and the field of security studies. Right. I, I wonder if you could talk about maybe the origin story of this field, um, how far back the discipline goes uh, and, and when and where does it emerge? Well, the book tells the story of uh, policy relevant work in security studies that goes back uh, to the beginning uh, of the modern discipline or almost the beginning of the modern discipline of uh, political science and some of the other social sciences uh, at the uh, dawn of the 20th century. Uh, the first, you know, sort of big example of scholars engaging national security issues uh, comes during World War One. The most uh, famous uh, manifestation of that, of course, was uh, Colonel House's inquiry. But as I show in the book, uh, there were a lot of other uh, ways in which social science uh, tried to uh, engage the big questions uh, of the uh, war effort. And of course, uh, that took place in a context not only of World War One and war, as you know, was an important uh variable in my argument, but also it coincided with the progressive era in American politics and American in intellectual life, was, which was one of those periods in which there was great optimism uh, about rigor and relevance uh, not only being uh, compatible, but actually uh, mutually reinforcing. Um, and so you see from the very beginning uh, a dual commitment uh, among uh, uh, social scientists to trying to be uh, both rigorous and relevant, um, but also uh, eventually the manifestation of tensions uh, between those two objectives. Um, and uh, in my story, uh, the increasing favor of rigor over relevance when push comes to shove. Now, the book covers the role of scientists more generally from a variety of disciplines in, in several major wars, as you just allude to. Um, you refer to World War II as the physicist's war. Right. Uh, how did scholars from physics come to play such a prominent role in the United States war effort? We, I think we all can point to what those sort of well-known examples are, but it's the process that pulls them into the war effort. Well, World War I um, was not the first time that happened. Uh, war throughout history has been a powerful engine of scientific progress, and that's you know makes sense given uh, that warfare is heavily dependent on technology and new more modes of organization. So even in World War I, you had a lot of participation by natural scientists, particularly chemists. In World War II, uh, the state of technology that was most relevant uh, to the battlefield uh, tended to be in the areas more closely related to uh, physics. And so, uh, you know, for example, the invention of radar uh, was uh, something that came out of uh, work that was being done uh, by physicists. 
but it's really, uh, you know, the rhinoceros in the room is uh, the uh, uh, development of the atomic bomb and the role of physicists in uh, not only splitting the atom, but also demonstrating how it could be weaponized. And were they um, willing participants in this? There's a um, uh, sort of a push and pull between the academy and, and the federal government and, and various agencies. What's how, how interested uh, and, and how um, much of this is push and how much of this is pull during World War II? Well, I think in World War II, it was both. Um, you know, there may have been uh, some dissent in uh, scientific circles uh, about involvement in the war effort, but uh, boy, it was pretty muted. And the key thing was in the uh, area of the race for the atomic bomb, uh, there was good reason to think, and you know, people like um, Albert Einstein warned uh, FDR that the Nazis uh, were pursuing the atomic bomb. So w- whatever moral qualms or you know, uh, scientific purity qualms, uh, a uh, physicist or a you know uh, engineer may have had about being involved in the Manhattan Project. Uh, the uh, desire to make sure that the Nazis were not the first to get this weapon uh, tended to uh, tamp all those down. Now, social scientists play a, a somewhat limited role in the World War II, especially relative to other fields, but the behavioral revolution. Uh, that occurs in sort of the wake of World War II remakes uh, many social science disciplines. Yep. It's- How does the field of security studies respond to the behavioral re- revolution compared to other fields like political science? Um, well, you know, I mean, it's sort of a, uh, a mixed response. I mean, a lot of the people in security studies, by no means all, but a lot of them were political scientists. So like many political scientists at the dawn of the behavioral age, uh, there was initially um, some interest in exploring uh, the utility of these new approaches uh, for dealing with some of the core issues um, in the national security space. So it wasn't like there was uh, an initial rejection, far from it. In fact, um, you know, whether uh, in the academy or in some of these para-academic organizations that uh, emerged in the early Cold War period, the most famous being Air Force's Project RAND and later the RAND Corporation, there was quite a bit of willingness to experiment with many of the tools of the behavioral revolution, particularly econometrics and game theory uh, by people doing uh, national security affairs. Now, you described the, the later Cold War period really as one of frustration for national security officials. They, they sought greater relations with the academy, but were either rejected or disappointed when relationships formed. Right. Unrequited oh. love. Right. What, what did the federal government want from scholars? Uh, what sort of programmatically did they provide? And what prevented them from getting what they wanted? Well, uh, policymakers have uh, long recognized um, that there's a lot of in-depth expertise 
that either, uh, especially people at the uh, higher levels, the political uh, appointees, um, don't have the uh, time or the opportunity to develop, uh, or simply uh, people who are working on government problems in, on a day-to-day basis in which the inbox never seems to empty, uh, just don't have the time to uh, develop a depth of knowledge in certain areas uh, that people who uh, in a university uh, or some other research uh, environment uh, can spend their whole life uh, developing. So they're looking for uh, expertise. Uh, the problem is, is that they're looking for problem-related expertise. And increasingly, the story, uh, in my view, uh, and especially after the uh, behavioral revolution, is that a lot of the expertise that the social sciences in general and political science in particular uh, come to prize is methodological expertise. And indeed, um, you know, the uh, brownie points are given out increasingly uh, for academic social scientists based on uh, methodology or rigor uh, and less and less for whether what they have to say is of use to a broader audience, including policymakers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, this seems so different from, from other fields where social scientists are closely involved in informing public policy, like in education or health or criminal justice, uh, where social scientists and policymakers work quite closely together. I wonder what you attribute. Maybe is do you take this uh, is is this uh, interpretation right? But but what do you attribute some of the differences in security studies and national security compared to some of these other fields where it seems as if uh, close relationships uh, have been formed and and the same, the frustrations you describe aren't nearly as as attenuated. Well, I th- I think the way I, uh, Heath I would frame it is this. I see. Uh, policy-relevant national security studies as being in many ways akin to criminal justice or education uh, or other, um, you know, uh, fields like that. Um, And the reason is twofold. Uh, One is that that it's tied to a concrete set of problems. Uh, You know, people, uh, well, you tell me, but my impression is that Criminal justice is about dealing uh, with uh, a series of uh, real problems and problems that are defined not only by uh, academic criminal justice studies, but also by uh, an outside uh, set of communities uh, for which you train students um, and uh, do research that's hopefully of interest to them. Um, I contrast uh, political science with, uh, or excuse me, uh, security studies 
with the discipline of political science. And what I'm trying to illustrate in the book is the tensions between a problem-driven field of study uh, like international security and a discipline uh, like political science. And the story that I'm telling is one in which uh, disciplinary incentives become uh, more powerful um, and tend to uh, downplay, if not, you know, shove aside uh, the problem-driven uh, considerations of uh, international security. And I'm guessing, and again, you know, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong about uh, criminal justice, um, but I'm guessing that uh, being an interdisciplinary field of study well, you use disciplinary knowledge, uh, you probably uh, don't find yourself, for example, being uh, fully in sync with uh, sociology uh, or psychology or economics as academic disciplines. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about criminal justice to, to answer that question. Um, but it, it does seem to me that the National Science Foundation uh, is has, has something to a uh, role to play in this uh, book that you write, and also this this question. So, where does NSF come in 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 thinking about this? Where do they fall on the the rigor and relevance and the applied or basic would be maybe the, the more of the language they would use. Uh, but how does NSF fit into the the story that you tell in your book? Well, NSF is a big part of the Cold War story. And I have to say, before I uh, you know, began doing the research uh, to write the book, I had a vague sense that NSF uh, was uh, a major piece uh, of the puzzle, uh, but I knew very little uh, about the uh, formative part of the story, and particularly the debate uh, both uh, at NSF or in Congress about NSF uh, between, you know, whether it was going to be an organization that was going to be uh, by scholars to support scholars or whether it was going to be a U.S. government agency that was going to encourage scholars uh, to meet the needs uh, of broader society. Um, and of course, that tension was there uh, from the get-go. The other tension that was uh, there was uh, the uncertain place of social science. Uh, and part of that had to do with the prejudices of the natural sciences, and particularly people like Vanover Bush, who were not persuaded that social science was a science in the way uh, he understood it. Um, and that you know, really shaped uh, how when the uh, National Science Foundation uh, belatedly got in the business uh, of supporting work in the social sciences that it emphasized very heavily uh, work in the social sciences, A, that looked like the natural sciences in terms of methods and approaches, and B, that it stayed away from political controversy by emphasizing basic research over applied research. Um, and, you know, as you saw in the story that I tell, in fact, uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, for social scientists to uh, avoid 
policy engagement uh, from all sorts of different directions, from the natural scientists whose model was one uh, focused on basic research, to even members of Congress who sometimes didn't like the political tack uh, of some social science research. So uh, I guess the uh, puzzle is not uh, why NSF has been committed over the years to uh, a narrow definition of uh, relevance and social science, but rather that they supported it at all, given the hurdles they had to overcome at the beginning of the uh, NSF's uh, uh you know, period. Yeah, I suspect any uh, former and current NSF uh, official would would agree with that. Uh, now, you have some thoughts on what could be done about this. Uh, what are some of the best ideas uh, that you have about um, making the the contributions of the academy um, uh, more significant, closing the gap between uh, the national security needs of the country? and the potential contributions that, that university-based scholars might make. What, uh, what do you suggest? Well, I have, as you know, uh, a wide range of discussions, uh, some of them you know, ranging from nuts and bolts sort of stuff in terms of understanding the real world of policymaking and uh, the size of the bandwidth that policymakers uh, have to think about uh, you know, the work that we do. Um, and, you know, I think that's important, but I also think, you know, there are a lot of other folks that have talked about that. And in the case of the uh, Bridging the Gap project at American University, uh, actually spends a lot of time uh, teaching younger social scientists about, you know, how to talk to a policymaker, how to you know, write an op-ed, how to uh, do media interviews and things like that. And I think that's really important. Um, and it's certainly uh, part of what needs to be done. But I also think at a more macro level, uh, I have some important uh, suggestions. One is uh, to shift our frame of reference uh, from a uh, method or tool definition uh, of what we're about in political science, uh, more in favor of a problem-oriented uh, definition of what we should be doing. And that's not to say that there isn't a place for uh, methods training and methods development um, in academic social science. But, you know, I think we've got to emphasize the point that uh, all of these things are for something. Um, and they don't exist independently of what they can tell us uh, about important uh, real-world problems. Secondly, I think we ought to understand, you know, we're a bit of a guild. Uh, and anytime you're a guild, uh, you know, you become a little bit self-referential and you lose touch uh, with how other people outside the guild see you and think about you. Uh, and I think that's problematic. I think, you know, again, engaging with real world problems enriches our research. I think we do much better research uh, when we're actually dealing uh, with, uh, you know, real stuff. Um, but secondly, despite the fact that, you know, we're in ivory towers, our ivory towers are in the middle of a broader society. 
including a society that we asked to support us either directly through tuition dollars or indirectly through uh, government appropriations for organizations like the National Science Foundation. And when people uh, outside the Guild ask, uh, like uh, former uh, House uh, Whip Eric Cantor from Virginia did, uh, about why they should devote a dollar to supporting work in political science rather than uh, a dollar uh, to support research in curing camp cancer, we better have a good answer to that question. And candidly, we've not always had a good answer or even tried to give an answer to that question. But, you know, we, uh, we can't get away from it. You can uh, build walls, um, but, uh, you know, the walls uh, are only so high. And uh, we depend uh, on the uh, larger community that we're a part of. And uh, we ought to understand that we have some obligations to them in addition to uh, our colleagues and our discipline. Yeah, Eric Cantor, ironically uh, defeated by a social scientist, uh, lost right. his house seat to a, to an economist. Uh, the book, uh, the really interesting book uh, that you've been hearing about is called Cult of the Irrelevant, The Waning Influence of Social Science on National Security. The author is Michael Desch. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Heath. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs>